0: book the seventh part six of birds of prey by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight christmas peace valentine hawkehurst did not make his appearance at the lawn on christmas eve he devoted that evening to the service of his old ally he performed all friendly offices for the departing captain dined with him very pleasantly in regent street and accompanied him to the london bridge terminus where he beheld the voyager comfortably seated in a second-class carriage of the night train for newhaven mr hawkehurst had seen the captain take a through-ticket for rowan and he saw the train leave the terminus this he held to be ocular demonstration of the fact that captain paget was really going to the gallic manchester that sort of customer is so uncommonly slippery said the young man to himself as he left the station nothing but the evidence of my own eyes would have convinced me of my friend's departure how pure and fresh the london atmosphere seems now that the perfume of horatio paget is out of it i wonder what he is going to do at Rowan. very little good i dare say but why should i wonder about him or trouble myself about him he is gone and i have set myself free from the trammels of the past the next day was christmas day mr hawkehurst recited scraps of milton's glorious hymn as he made his morning toilet he was very happy it was the first christmas morning on which he had ever awakened with this sense of supreme happiness or with the consciousness that the day was brighter or grander or more holy than other days IT SEEMED TO HIM TODAY, MORE THAN EVER, THAT HE WAS INDEED A REGENERATE CREATURE, PURIFIED BY THE INFLUENCE OF A GOOD WOMAN'S LOVE. HE LOOKED BACK AT HIS PAST EXISTENCE, AND THE VISION OF MANY CHRISTMAS DAYS AROSE BEFORE HIM. A CHRISTMAS IN PARIS, AMIDST unutterable RAIN AND MUD. A CHRISTMAS NIGHT SPENT IN ROAMING THE BOULEVARDS, AND IN THE CONSUMPTION OF cognac AND TOBACCO AT A THIRD-RATE CAFE. A CHRISTMAS IN GERMANY more than one christmas in the queen's bench one especially dreary christmas in a long bare ward at Whitecross street how many varied scenes and changing faces arose before his mental vision associated with that festive time and yet among them all there was not one on which there shone the faintest glimmer of that holy light which makes the common holiday a sacred season it was a pleasant thing to breakfast without the society of the brilliant horatio whose brilliancy was apt to appear somewhat ghastly at that early period of the morning it was pleasant to loiter over the meal now meditating on the happy future now dipping into a tattered copy of southeast doctor with the consciousness that the winds and waves had by this time wafted captain paget to a foreign land valentine was to spend the whole of christmas day with charlotte and her kindred he was to accompany them to a fashionable church in the morning to walk with them after church to dine and tell ghost stories in the evening it was to be his first day as a recognized member of that pleasant family at bayswater and in the fulness of his heart he felt affectionately disposed to all his adopted relations even to mr sheldon whose very noble conduct had impressed him strongly in spite of the bitter sneers and covert slanders of george charlotte had told her lover that her stepfather was a very generous and disinterested person and that there was a secret which she would have been glad to tell him had she not been pledged to hold it inviolate. that would have gone far to place mr sheldon in a very exalted light before the eyes of his future son-in-law and then miss halliday nodded and smiled and informed her lover with a joyous little laugh that he should have a horse to ride and an edition of groat's grease bound in dark brown calf with bevelled edges when they were married this work being one which the young author had of late languished to possess dear foolish lota i fear there will be new history of greece based on new theories before that time comes said the lover no indeed that time will come very soon see how industriously you work see how well you succeed the magazine people will soon give you thirty pounds a month or who knows that you may not write some book that will make you suddenly famous like byron or the good-natured fat little printer who wrote those long 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 novels that no one reads nowadays influenced by charlotte's hints about her stepfather mr hawkehurst's friendly feeling for that gentleman grew stronger and the sneers and innuendos of the lawyer ceased to have the smallest power over him the man is such a thoroughgoing schemer himself that he cannot bring himself to believe in another man's honesty thought mr hawkehurst while meditating upon his experience of the two brothers so far as i have had any dealings with philip sheldon i have found him straightforward enough i can imagine no hidden motive for his conduct in relation to charlotte the test of his honesty will be a manner in which he is acted upon by charlotte's position as a claimant of a great fortune will he throw me overboard i wonder or will my dear one believe me an adventurer and fortune-hunter ah no 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 i do not think in all the complications of life there could come about a state of events which would cause my charlotte to doubt me There is no clairvoyance so unerring as true love mr hawkehurst had need of such philosophy as this to sustain him in the present crisis of his life he was blessed with a pure delight which excelled his wildest dreams of happiness but he was not blessed with any sense of security as to the endurance of that exalted state of bliss mr sheldon would learn charlotte's position would doubtless extort from his brother the history of those researches in which valentine had been engaged and then what then alas hereupon those incalculable dangers and perplexities might not the stockbroker as a man of the world take a sordid view of the whole transaction and consider valentine in the light of a shameless adventurer who had traded upon his secret knowledge in the hope of securing a rich wife might he not reveal all to charlotte and attempt to place her lover before her in this most odious aspect she would not believe him base her faith would be unshaken her love unchanged but it was odious it was horrible to think that her ears should be sullied her tender heart fluttered by the mere suggestion of such baseness it was during the christmas morning sermon that mr hawkehurst permitted his mind to be disturbed by these reflections he was sitting next to his betrothed and had the pleasure of contemplating her fair girlish face with the rosy lips half parted in reverent attention as she looked upward to her pastor after church there was a walk home to the lawn and during this rapturous promenade valentine put away from him all shadow of doubt and fear and in order to bask in the full sunshine of his charlotte's presence Her pretty gloved hand rested confidingly on his arm and the supreme privilege of carrying a dainty blue silk umbrella with an ivory-bound church service was awarded him with what pride he accepted the duty of conveying his promised wife over the muddy crossings those brief journeys seemed to him in a manner typical of their future lives she was to travel dry-shod over the miry ways of this world supported by his strong arm how fondly he surveyed her toilet, and what a sudden interest he felt in the fashions that had, until lately, seemed so vulgar and frivolous. "'I will never denounce the absurdity of those little bonnets again, Lota,' he cried. "'That conglomeration of black velvet and maiden's hair fern is divine. Do you know that in some places they call that fern Maria's hair, and hold it sacred to the mother of him who was born to-day?' "'Do you see there is an artistic fitness in your headdress. "'Yes, your bonnet is delicious, darling. "'And though the diminutive size of that velvet jacket "'would lead me to suppose you had borrowed it from some juvenile sister, "'it seems the very garment of all garments best calculated "'to render you just one hair's breadth nearer perfection "'than you were made by nature.' "'Valentine, don't be ridiculous,' giggled the young lady how can i help being ridiculous your presence acts upon my nerves like laughing gas ah do you not know what cares and perplexities i have to make me serious charlotte exclaimed the young man with sudden energy do you think you could ever come to distrust me valentine do i think i shall ever be queen of england one thing is quite as likely as the other my dear angel if you will only believe in me always there is no power upon earth that can make us unhappy suppose you found yourself suddenly possessed of a great fortune charlotte what would you do with it i would buy you a library as good as that in the british museum and then you would not want to spend the whole of your existence in great russell street but if you had a great fortune Lotta, don't you think you would be very much disposed to leave me to plot at my desk in great russell street possessed of wealth you would begin to languish for position and you would allow mr sheldon to bring you some suitor who could give you a name and rank in a society worthy of an angelic creature with a hundred thousand pounds or so i should do nothing of the kind i do not care for money indeed i should be almost sorry to be very rich why dearest because if i were very rich we could not live in the cottage at wimbledon and I could not make lemon cheesecakes for your dinner. My own true-hearted darling, cried Valentine, the taint of worldliness can never touch your pure spirit. They were at the gates of Mr. Sheldon's domain by this time. Diana and Georgie had walked behind the lovers and had talked a little about the sermon and a good deal about the bonnets poor diana doing her very utmost to feign an interest in the finery that had attracted mrs sheldon's wandering gaze well i should have thought you couldn't fail to see it said the elderly lady as they approached the gate a leghorn very small with holly berries and black ribbon quite french you know and so stylish i was thinking if i had my tuscan cleaned and altered it might and here the conversation became general as the family party entered the drawing-room where mr sheldon was reading his paper by a roaring fire talking about the bonnets as per usual said the stockbroker what an enormous amount of spiritual benefit you women must derive from church-going consuls have fallen another eighth since tuesday afternoon george added mr sheldon addressing himself to his brother who was standing on the hearth-rug with his elbow on the chimney-piece consuls are your bonnets papa cried charlotte gaily i don't think there is a day upon which you do not talk about their having gone up or down or gone somewhere after luncheon the lovers went for a walk in kensington gardens with diana paget to play propriety you will come with us won't you dear Di? pleaded charlotte you've been looking pale and ill lately and i'm sure a walk will do you good valentine seconded his liege lady's request and the three spent a couple of hours pacing briskly to and fro in the lonelier parts of the garden leaving the broad walks for the cockneys who mustered strong upon this seasonable christmas afternoon for out of those three that wintry walk was rapture only too fleeting for the third it was passive endurance the agonies that had but lately rent diana's breast when she had seen those two together no longer tortured her the scorpion sting was beginning to lose its venomous power she suffered still but her suffering was softened by resignation there is a limit to the capacity for pain in every mind diana had borne her share of grief she had in homeric phrase satiated herself with anguish and tears and to those sharp throes and bitter torments there had succeeded a passive sense of sorrow that was almost peace i have lost him she said to herself life can never bring me much joy but i should be worse than weak if i spent my existence in the indulgence of my sorrow i should be one of the vilest wretches upon this earth if i could not teach myself to witness the happiness of my friend without repining miss paget had not arrived at this frame of mind without severe struggles many times in the long wakeful nights in the slow joyless days she had said to herself peace peace when there was no peace but at last the real peace the true balm of gilead was given in the answer to her prayers and the weary soul tasted the sweetness of repose she had wrestled with and had vanquished the demon Today, as she walked beside the lovers and listened to their happy frivolous talk she felt like a mother who had seen the man she loved won from her by her own daughter and who had resigned herself to the ruin of all her hopes for the love of her child there was more genial laughter and pleasant converse at mr sheldon's dinner-table that evening than was usual at the hospitable ward but the stockbroker himself contributed little to the merriment of the party he was quiet and even thoughtful and let the talk and laughter go by him without any attempt to take part in it after dinner he went to his own room while valentine and the ladies sat around the fire in the orthodox christmas manner and after a good deal of discursive conversation subsided into the telling of ghost stories george sheldon sat apart from the circle turning over the books upon the table or peering into a stereoscope with an evident sense of weariness This kind of domestic evening was a manner of life which Mr. Sheldon of Gray's Inn denounced as slow, and he submitted himself to the endurance of it this evening, only because he did not know where else to bestow his presence. "'I don't think Papa cares much about ghost stories, does he, Uncle George?' Charlotte asked, by way of saying something to the gentleman, who seemed so very dreary as he sat yawning over the books and stereoscopes. "'I don't suppose he does, my dear?' "'And do you think he believes in ghosts?' the young lady demanded, laughingly. "'No, I'm sure he doesn't,' replied George, very seriously. "'Why, how seriously you say that!' cried Charlotte, a little startled by George Sheldon's manner, in which there had been an earnestness not quite warranted by the occasion. "'I was thinking of your father, not my brother Phil. He died in Philip's house, you know, and if Philip believed in ghosts, he would scarcely have liked living in that house afterwards you see and so on but he went on living there for a twelvemonth longer it seemed just as good as any other house to him i suppose hereupon georgie dissolved into tears and told the company how she had fled heartbroken from the house in which her first husband had died immediately after the funeral and i'm sure the gentlemanly manner in which your steppapa behaved during all that dreadful time charlotte is beyond all praise continued the lady turning to her daughter so thoughtful so kind so patient what should i have done if poor tom's illness had happened in a strange house i don't know and i have no doubt that the new doctor mr burkham did his duty though his manner was not as decided as i should have wished mr burkham cried valentine WHAT BURKHAM IS THAT? WE'VE A MEMBER OF THE RAGMUFFINS CALLED BURKHAM, A SURGEON, WHO DOES A LITTLE IN THE LITERARY LINE. THE MR. BURKHAM WHO ATTENDED MY POOR DEAR HUSBAND WAS A VERY YOUNG MAN, ANSWERED GEORGIE, A FAIR MAN, WITH A FRESH COLOR AND A HESITATING MANNER. I SHOULD HAVE BEEN SO MUCH BETTER SATISFIED IF HE HAD BEEN OLDER. THAT'S THE MAN, SAID VALENTINE. THE BURKHAM I KNOW IS FRESH COLORED AND FAIR, AND CANNOT BE MUCH OVER THIRTY. "'Are you and he particularly intimate?' asked George Sheldon carelessly. "'Oh, dear, no, not at all. "'We speak to each other when we happen to meet, that's all. "'He seems a nice fellow enough, and he evidently hasn't much practice, "'or he couldn't afford to be a ragamuffin and to write farces. "'He looks to me exactly the kind of modest, deserving man who ought to succeed, "'and who so seldom does.' This was all that was said about Mr. Burkham but there was no more talk of ghost stories and a temporary depression fell upon the little assembly the memory of her father had always a saddening influence on charlotte and it needed many tender sotto voce speeches from valentine to bring back the smiles to her fair young face the big electro plated tea-tray and massive silver teapot made their appearance presently and immediately after came mr sheldon i want to have a little talk with you after tea hawkehurst he said as he took his own cup from georgie's hand and proceeded to imbibe the beverage standing if you will come out into the garden and have a cigar i can say all i have to say in a very few minutes and then we can come in here for a rubber georgie is a very decent player and my brother george plays as good a hand at whist as any man at the conservative or the reform valentine's heart sank within him What could Mr. Sheldon want with a few minutes' talk, if not to revoke his gracious permission of some days before? The permission that had been accorded in ignorance of Charlotte's pecuniary advantages. The young man looked very pale as he went to smoke his cigar in Mr. Sheldon's garden. Charlotte followed him with anxious eyes, and wondered at the sudden gravity of his manner. George Sheldon was also puzzled by his brother's desire for a tete-a-tete. "'What new move is Phil going to make?' he asked himself. The two men lit their cigars and got them well under way before Mr. Sheldon began to talk. "'When I gave my consent to receive you as Miss Halliday's suitor, my dear Hawkehurst,' he said at last, "'I told you that I was acting as very few men of the world would act, and I only told you the truth. "'Since giving you that consent, I have made a very startling discovery, "'and one that places me in quite a new position in regard to this matter.' "'Indeed?' "'Yes, Mr. Hawkehurst. "'I have become aware of the fact that Miss Halliday, "'the girl whom I thought entirely dependent upon my generosity, "'is heir at law to a large fortune. "'You will, of course, perceive how entirely this alters the position of affairs.' "'I do perceive,' Valentine answered earnestly. "'But I trust you will believe that I have not the faintest idea "'of Miss Halliday's position when I asked her to be my wife.' as to my love for her i can scarcely tell you when that began but i think it must have dated from the first hour in which i saw her for i can remember no period at which i did not love her if i did not believe you superior to any mercenary motives you would have not been under my roof to-day mr hawkehurst said the stockbroker with extreme gravity the discovery of my stepdaughter's position gives me no pleasure her claim to this wealth only increases my responsibility with regard to her and responsibility is what i would willingly avoid after all due deliberation therefore i have decided that this discovery need make no alteration in your position as charlotte's future husband if you were worthy of her when she was without fortune you are not less worthy now mr sheldon cried valentine with considerable emotion "'I did not expect so much generosity at your hands.' "'No,' replied the stockbroker. "'The popular idea of a businessman is not particularly agreeable. "'I do not, however, pretend to anything like generosity. "'I wish to take a common-sense view of the affair, but not an illiberal one. "'You have shown so much generosity of feeling "'that I can no longer sail under false colors,' said Valentine, after a brief pause." until a day or two i was bound to secrecy by a promise made to your brother but his communication of miss halliday's rights to you sets me at liberty and i must tell you that which may possibly cause you to withdraw your confidence hereupon mr hawkehurst revealed his share in the researches that had resulted in the discovery of miss halliday's claim to a large fortune he entered into no details he told mr sheldon only that he had been the chief instrument in bringing about of this important discovery i can only repeat what i said just now he added in conclusion i have loved charlotte holliday from the beginning of our acquaintance and i declared myself some days before i discovered her position i trust this confession will in no wise alter your estimate of me it would be a poor return for your candor if i were to doubt your voluntary statement hawkehurst answered the broker no i shall not withdraw my confidence and if your researches should ultimately lead to the advancement of my stepdaughter there will be only poetical justice in your profiting more or less by that advancement in the meantime we cannot take matters too quietly i am not a sanguine person and i know how many hearts have been broken by the high court of chancery this grand discovery of yours may result in nothing but disappointment and waste of money or it may end as pleasantly as my brother and you seem to expect all i ask is that poor charlotte's innocent heart may not be tortured by a small lifetime of suspense let her be told nothing that can create hope in the present or disappointment in the future she appears to be perfectly happy in her present position and it would be worse than folly to disturb her by vague expectations that may never be realized. She will have to make affidavits and so on, by and by, I dare say, and when that time comes she must be told there is some kind of suit pending in which she is concerned. But she need not be told how nearly that suit concerns her, or the extent of her alleged claim. You see, my dear sir, I have seen so much of this sort of thing, and the misery involved in it, that I may be forgiven if I am cautious." This was putting the whole affair in a new light. Until this moment Valentine had fancied that, the chain of evidence once established, Charlotte's claim had only to be asserted in order to place her in immediate possession of the Haygarth estate. But Mr. Sheldon's cool and matter-of-fact discussion of the subject implied all manner of doubt and difficulty and the haygarthian thousands seem carried away to the most remote and shadowy regions of chancery land as by the waves of some legal ocean and you really think it would be better not to tell charlotte i'm sure of it if you wish to preserve her from all manner of worry and annoyance you will take care to keep her in the dark until the affair is settled supposing it ever should be settled i have known such an affair to outlast the person interested "'You take a very despondent view of the matter. "'I take a practical view of it. "'My brother George is a monomaniac on the next-of-kin subject. "'I cannot quite reconcile myself to the idea of concealing the truth from Charlotte. "'That is because you do not know the world as well as I do,' answered Mr. Sheldon coolly. "'I cannot imagine that the idea of this claim would have any disturbing influence upon her,' "'Valentine argued thoughtfully.' SHE IS THE LAST PERSON IN THE WORLD TO CARE ABOUT MONEY. PERHAPS SO, BUT THERE IS A KIND OF INTOXICATION IN THE IDEA OF A LARGE FORTUNE, AN INTOXICATION THAT NO WOMAN OF CHARLOTTE'S AGE COULD STAND AGAINST. TELL HER THAT SHE HAS A CLAIM TO CONSIDERABLE WEALTH, AND FROM THAT MOMENT SHE WILL COUNT UPON THE POSSESSION OF THAT WEALTH, AND SHAPE ALL HER plans FOR THE FUTURE UPON THAT BASIS. WHEN I GET MY FORTUNE, I WILL DO THIS, THAT, AND THE OTHER, THAT IS WHAT SHE WILL BE CONTINUALLY SAYING TO HERSELF. AND BY AND BY, WHEN THE AFFAIR RESULTS IN FAILURE, AS IT VERY LIKELY WILL, THERE WILL REMAIN A SENSE OF DISAPPOINTMENT WHICH WILL LAST FOR A lifetime AND GO FAR TO EMBITTER ALL THE ORDINARY PLEASURES OF HER EXISTENCE. I AM INCLINED TO THINK YOU ARE RIGHT, SAID VALENTINE, AFTER SOME LITTLE DELIBERATION. MY DARLING GIRL IS PERFECTLY HAPPY AS IT IS. IT MAY BE WISEST TO TELL HER NOTHING i am quite sure of that replied mr sheldon of course her being enlightened or not can be in no way material to me it is a subject upon which i can afford to be entirely disinterested i will take your advice mr sheldon so be it in that case matters will remain in status quo you will be received in this house as my stepdaughter's future husband, and it is an understood thing that your marriage is not to take place without due consultation with me. I am to have a voice in this business. Most decidedly, it is only right that you should be deferred to. This brought the interview to a close very pleasantly. The gentleman went back to the house and valentine found himself presently seated at a whist-table with the brothers sheldon and georgie who played very well in a feeble kind of way holding religiously by all the precepts of hoyle and in evident fear of her husband and brother-in-law charlotte and diana played duets while the whist progressed with orthodox silence and solemnity on the part of the four players valentine's eyes wandered very often to the piano and he was in no wise sorry when the termination of a conquering rubber set him at liberty. He contrived to secure a brief tete-tete with Charlotte, while he helped her in the arrangement of the books on the music-stand, and then the shrill chime of the clock on the mantelpiece, and an audible yawn from Philip Sheldon, told him that he must go. Providence has been very good to us, he said, in an undertone, as he bade Miss Halliday good-night. Your stepfather's conduct is all that is kind and thoughtful, and there's not a cloud upon our future. Good night, and God bless you, my dearest. I think I shall always consider this my first Christmas day. I never knew till to-day how sweet and holy this anniversary can be.' He walked to Cumberland Gate in company with George Sheldon, who preserved a sulky gravity, which was by no means agreeable. "'You have chosen your own course.' he said at parting and i only hope the result may prove your wisdom but as i think i may have remarked before you don't know my brother phil as well as i do your brother has behaved in such extreme candor and good feeling toward me that i would really rather not hear any of your unpleasant innuendos against him i hate that i could and if i would style of talk and while i occupy my present position in your brother's house I cannot consent to hear anything to his discredit. "'That's a very tall animal you've taken to riding lately, my friend Hawkehurst,' said George. "'And when a man rides the high horse with me, I always let him have the benefit of his mentor. "'You have served yourself without consideration for me, "'and I shall not trouble myself in the future with any regard for you or your interests. "'But if harm ever comes to you or yours through my brother Philip,' "'Remember that I warned you. Good night.' In Charlotte's room, the cheery little fire burned late upon that frosty night, while the girl sat in her dressing-gown, dreamily brushing her soft brown hair, and meditating upon the superhuman merits and graces in her lover. It was more than an hour after the family had retired, when there came a cautious tapping on Charlotte's door. "'It's only I, dear.' said a low voice, and before Charlotte could answer, the door was opened, and Diana came in, and went straight to the hearth, by which her friend was sitting. "'I am so wakeful to-night, Lotha, she said, and the light under your door tempted me to come in for a few minutes' chat. My dearest Di, you know how glad I always am to see you. Yes, dear, I know that you were only too good to me, and I have been so wayward, so ungracious. "Oh, Charlotte, I know my coldness has wounded you during the last few months. I have been just a little hurt now and then, dear, when you have seemed not to care for me, or to sympathize with me in all my joys and sorrows. But then it has been selfish of me to expect so much sympathy. And I know that, if your manner is cold, your heart is noble. No, Loda, it is not noble. It is a wicked heart. Diana! Yes, said Miss Paget, kneeling by her friend's chair, and speaking with suppressed energy. "'It has been a wicked heart, wicked because your happiness has been torture to it. "'Diana—' "'Oh, my dearest one, do not look at me with those innocent, wondering eyes. "'You will hate me, perhaps, when you know all. "'Oh, no, 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 you will not hate. "'You will pity and forgive me. "'I love him, dear. "'He was my companion, my only friend.' and there was a time long ago before he had ever seen your face when i fancied that he cared for me and would get to love me as i loved him unasked uncared for oh charlotte you can never know what i have suffered it is not in your nature to comprehend what such a woman as i can suffer i loved him so dearly i clung so wickedly so madly to my old hopes my old dreams long after they had become the falsest hopes, the wildest dreams that ever had power over a distracted mind. But, my darling, it is past, and I come to you on this Christmas night to tell you that I have conquered my stubborn heart, and that from this time forward there shall be no cloud between you and me. "'Diana, my dear friend, poor girl,' cried Charlotte, quite overcome, "'you loved him, you as well as I, and I have robbed you of his heart.' no charlotte it was never mine you loved him all the time you spoke so harshly of him when i seemed most harsh i loved him most but do not look at me with such distress in your sweet face my dear i tell you that the worst pain is past and gone the rest is very easy to bear and to outlive these things do not last for ever charlotte whatever the poets and novelists may tell us if i have not lived through the worst i should not be here tonight with your arm around my neck and his name upon my lips i have never wished you joy until tonight charlotte and now for the first time i can wish you all good things in honesty and truth i have conquered myself i do not say that to me valentine hawkehurst can never be quite what other men are i think that to the end of my life there will be a look in his face a tone of his voice That will touch me more deeply than any other look or tone upon earth but my love for you has overcome my love for him and there is no hidden thought in my mind to-night as i sit here at your feet and pray for god's blessing on your choice my darling diana i know not how to thank you how to express my faith and my love i doubt if i am worthy of your love dear but with god's help i will be worthy of your trust and if ever there should come a day in which my love can succour or my devotion serve you there shall be no lack of either listen dear there are the waits playing the sweet christmas hymn do you remember what shakespeare says about the bird of dawning singing all night long and how no evil spirit roams abroad at this dear season so hallowed and so gracious is the time i have conquered my evil spirit Lota, and there shall be peace and true love between us for evermore shall there not dearest friend and thus ends the story of diana paget's girlish love the love that had grown up in secret to be put away from her heart in silence and buried with the dead dreams and fancies that had fostered it for her tonight the romance of life closed forever for charlotte the sweet story was newly begun and the opening chapters were very pleasant the mystic volumes seemed all delight blessed with her lover's devotion her mother's approval and even mr sheldon's benign approbation what more could she ask from providence what lurking dangers could she fear what storm cloud could she perceive upon the sunlit heavens there was a cloud no bigger than a man's hand but the harbinger of tempest and terror it yet remains to be shown what form that cloud assumed, and from what quarter the tempest came. The history of Charlotte Halliday has grown upon the writer, and the completion of that history with the fate of John Haygarth's fortune will be found under the title of Charlotte's Inheritance. End of book. The seventh part six, recording by Kirk Ziegler, voiceovers by Kirk dot com. End of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon